Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Dr. Susan Wardle, a professional practice fellow at the University of Otago, New Zealand. She is a medical social anthropologist with an interest in digital media, particularly in relationship to mental health. We will talk to Susan about her experience in the space of mental health research and social media. We cover topics such as the fluid relationship people build with technology, and we talk about sociality, anonymity and power dynamics when engaging on Facebook. We talk about self-care and about using social technology to access communities of care. We talk about ethics, intervention and anthropology and about the link between precarity and mental health in academia. We hope you enjoy it. Um, so I guess we're going to start off with the first question. It's literally one we ask every single person and that is for you, in your own words, what is anthropology? Anthropology, I would define as the study of humanity, of humans in the broadest sense. So um, the way they live, but also the way they make life meaningful, all the layers of of interest and culture and society that go across the bare bones of species survival that make us such interesting creatures. Tell me a bit more about yourself and how you found your way into anthropology. Well, I think I stumbled into anthropology, as most people do, uh, as an undergraduate who just wanted to sample as many different disciplines across the humanities as I could. And uh, eventually, you know, you you narrow it down by the things that just um, tug on you that, you know, you know, they'll never let you go and you won't ever let them go. And anthropology was one of those that spoke to me from very early on. Um, So I ended up as an undergraduate doing a double degree with anthropology and communication studies, which was something I hadn't encountered too many other people pairing together. But for me, it was just such an absolutely obvious fit because communication is is at the heart of culture. Um, and it's um, very much part of understanding, particularly in contemporary Western settings, some of the ways we convey cultural meanings is through media and media systems. So I carry that on actually through to my honours work, and then when I um, took up my PhD, I decided I would keep those as kind of my dual departments, my dual majors. And although I'm teaching now in the um, Department of Anthropology and Archaeology here at Otago, I still keep my own keen interest in um, media as a part of that. So what type of technologies, is it? would it be media technologies that have your attention the most? Um, yeah, I'm interested in um, media in terms of a platform that stories and meanings and discourses are communicated through. But I'm also really interested in digital media and social media um, as, I guess, more than a platform, but a place, a field site, um, and innovative ways that um, anthropologists and everyone else can catch up to doing research online. Um, I think that's such a fascinating and constantly evolving field. How do we study online communities or online cultures and what's the relationship then between an online community and an offline community because clearly those have to intersect in some way 
And given that my area is medical anthropology, we're so interested in embodiment, um, looking at things which are typically considered to be disembodied, like online experiences, um, is a funny disconnect in a way, um, and yet something that needs answering, really. How does that relate to the body? Things like um, health apps and communities to do with um, health issues, whether that's mental or physical health. Uh, it's interesting taking the physical issues into the digital realm and nothing is really disembodied. So there's that. And I've also been really lucky to um, work with my mentor, Professor Ruth Fitzgerald, who's done a lot of work with reproductive technologies mm. um, from the anthropological lens in New Zealand. So uh, that's a completely different type of technology but that I'm also interested in. How do you ethnographically approach these online spaces? That's a question that I think I'm in process with rather than having solved. Um, I think for me, the preference is that instead of seeing digital things as artifacts or texts as something you want to snapshot as anything static, I prefer to analyse them as if they're places, you know, they're sites in which people take actions rather than just read or communicate um, the places in which people do things, real social things. So I prefer to see them as sites, but that means that when you look at anything, any digital place or resource, you have to look at it in a lot more of a holistic sense um, and over time and embed yourself in that rather than just, again, taking a snapshot perhaps and analysing it in terms of semiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, per, for example, I've been looking at um, looking at comments on Facebook and, you know, it's that funny old, say, well, not old saying, I guess recent saying about don't read the comments because they're seen as one of the kind of darkest <laughs> places of the internet. Uh, but it's been fascinating to do that because you see the way that um, people interact in this kind of fluid dialogical way, meaning is made in conversation rather than set by any one person. So um, that term dialogical has become really important for me applied to social media, seeing it as a dialogical space. How do you feel people use social media? Like, Do you mean that the people that kind of use those environments, those spaces of technology, they also use them and the type of relationship they build with them, is it similar to a place? It would be diverse, depends on which community you're looking at um, and which group of people. But I think people will build a relationship with those, which is one of agency. You know, people use them strategically um, and bend them and um, fit them into their own existing cultural life worlds. I don't think um, you can ever separate that out. But um, I have noticed that. In the general in the general world and in academia, there tends to be kind of two approaches to that question that you're asking about people's relationship with technology, um, and one is kind of the alarmist camp, and the other is like an idealist camp. So a lot of people will look at that question and say, "Well, technology impacts people and their cultures, and it changes them irrevocably forever." and Um, you know, words like eroding or destroying or um, that it takes apart a lot of things that we perhaps value about cultural or social interaction. And then on the other side, in the idealist camp, there are others saying, well, people shape the technology and um, it's going to be so democratic and so egalitarian and um, such a wonderful tool. Mm. And um, I'm certainly not inclined to agree wholeheartedly with either camp because it is this fluid relationship where the technology does shape people's 
um, offline and online worlds, but people also use it in quite mm. um, strategic ways at the same time. So it's mm. fluid. It would be the very short answer yeah. to One of the things that we kind of were talking around was the speed through which technology is you know, is changing the way we engage with each other and our practices and our cultural norms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that with technology also, that speed has been reduced. So within one generation, you go through this big changes of, of, you know, like, how do you, what is normal? How do you engage socially with somebody else? Like, I remember I'm 37 and I can still remember a time in my own life where I didn't even have a mobile phone. I, I, can, I can remember that. I can remember life without internet. I can remember life without social media. And I'm just 37. So I just wondered if you could speak a bit to this concept of, of time and adaptation and, and, and group norms. I think that's a, um, that's a great question. Because in some ways you can argue that, and often I do argue that, technology doesn't really radically change the way we interact. It just gives a different platform for it. You know, we still mm -hmm. do the same things. We still communicate and we still um, have debates and we still support people. It's just on this different platform. And um, the difference may be not a huge deal different from the shift from um, the market square to the salon to the newspaper. But I think the main difference you can argue is that crunching of time, mm. is that um, the shift to different platforms and different cultural norms of communication that come with it has mm. been so dramatically increased in speed. And that does count for something um, in terms of generational differences. And within the one generation, as you say, <laughs> I can still remember life before cell phones as well. Um, so I think uh, the the different norms of communicating in that time frame are quite interesting. Um, Mikhail Button's work on chronotypes, this idea of chronotypes and setting up a, um, yeah, having a unique kind of time operating is something that I've been trying to apply recently to social media because when you look at how debate develops on social media about a key topic. So I've, I was looking at a news story around Down syndrome, for example, mm -hmm. and the comments about that. So people were taking it to this public sphere and they're debating things which, you know, in everyday language are about deep issues like belonging and citizenship and care and um, around topics like disability. But the, the way it evolves is shaped by the time frame, that it's very instantaneous, but that the way people interact isn't um, always back to the central, um, the central post and they're interacting with each other. And the time frame that it evolves at, even at that scale is quite different on social media. Yeah, so people interact with each other, but it's shaped by this unique, you know, they talk about news time. I think there's something different that we have now that we could call Facebook time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wonder how does sociality play into this? Because you're speaking to like they bring it to a public platform, but who makes up this pla public platform and, and what type of sociality does that bring with it? Right. Is it. And I think this ties pretty well to how Facebook is now changing a bit their algorithms to show you more of your social network that is closer to you rather than the more distant ones. So I, I wonder if you could speak a bit more to the sociality of, of social media and who exactly is that audience to you as a, as a person um, writing there? Mm, sure. Well, there's that kind of um, debate about, I guess, confirmation bias and 
is embedded in the algorithms that you see and hear more of the voices that are like you. Um, but it's that funny um, two-way thing of how much is that because of the way the technology is structured and the way the algorithms work and how much of it is just the, the social nature of people and their interactions. And certainly in analysing things like Facebook comments, I did find that people policed each other mm. as much as anything, each other's um, tone and each other's kind of social interactions. And even though you'd have different groups engaging in different forms of sociality and some people wanted intellectual debate and some people just wanted um, to hate on other people and others wanted to offer support or conversation, um, that that process was going on kind of um, outside of any official moderation. People would moderate each other just like they would, I guess, standing outside in a street in, in the, mar- the market square scenario. You know what, I've been just having this conversation with my sister the other day about Facebook and how like being able to see when someone now reads your comments has changed my relationships with people so much because <laughs> now I can see that they've looked at it and chosen not to respond Right. and I'm just like, ooh, like, you know, why have yeah. they not responded to me? And I'm just wondering like, what do you think about how this changes our relationships to not just technology but like um, each other? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, the anonymity that used to be characteristic of social media more is reducing. Mm. Um, And the, yeah, silence is always very meaningful. And any kind of communication, silence or absence (laughs) speaks just as loudly as any kind of comment does. So I guess drawing back the veil and being able to see when people choose to be silent or not respond or not like something, um, it just enables another layer of depth and nuance to this this communicatory platform. Yeah. I was wondering because you were you were talking earlier about your medical experience and interest in medical anthropology. How does that combine with social media? How how, how do you see um, people engaging on social media around medical topics or with social media tools? connected to health devices or apps. Um, we had a speaker coming here a few weeks ago that, that kind of talked about, you know, the, the social aspect of mental health devices or mental health tools and what happens when you bring a community of people together that kind of, you know, go through a process of um, engaging with their own health condition and how do those apps um, succeed or fail at, at, at enabling that interaction? Yeah, uh, it just is occurring in so many variety of different ways now from, um, you know, closed community groups um, to, um, to as you say, apps that are more individual user-based. Um, and each of those has its different relationship with offline communities. But one thing, of course, that is characteristic of um, digital technologies is that it connects people ba- on the basis of similar and shared experiences rather than geographical locations. So certainly for people who have particularly rare um, medical difficulties, then they've found huge amounts of um, support and solidarity, whether that's on an emotional level or sometimes on a political activist level to um, put forward lobbying um, to government or other bodies, um, even in, you know, in groups that would otherwise be quite underrepresented. Uh, I'm quite interested in the mental health side, as I think I mentioned, um, and the apps that are being developed around that as well. Actually, when I did my honours work, which was a wee while ago now, um, 
2011, I think, uh, I was looking at GP-targeted advertising um, for antidepressants. Um, but one thing I saw coming up alongside the advertisement for these medications was advertising for this new campaign, it was new at the time, called The Journal. So that was specific to New Zealand, and it was a campaign fronted by John Kerwin, former All Black, um, around this new online program for mental health management. And I've seen a lot of that sort of thing grow since that time, um, providing platforms for people to manage their own mental health. But it's another great example, though, of how those things are so culturally embedded and specific, because when I looked at that back then, I was analysing how that was quite unique to the um, gender dynamics of health and of mental health in New Zealand, um, that it was unique and seen as progressive and that it was a male figure who was fronting this mental health campaign. And New Zealand, of course, does have very high statistics for male suicide. Um, so in that way, it was addressing that directly. But I also kind of noted, and this is the power of deconstructive anthropology, you know, um, that because it was focused on self-help and self-care, that that almost leaned back into the gender dynamics and that men were being encouraged to look after themselves, sort themselves out, mm. rather than necessarily seek professional regular help or the medication aspect, which is not to say that though, that program wouldn't encourage that, but um, yeah, this, this whole aspect of self-care and self-help is very ideologically based. Yeah, because I was just thinking when you said that, I know like quite a lot of people that don't like to go into doctors. So mm -hmm. the idea of like going online and, you know, just helping themselves, getting help from other people was probably more comforting than going out into public and seeing a doctor. Mm, it can be so powerful, yeah, to reach people, especially given that the nature of many mental health issues includes um, yeah, difficulties with social interaction and um, public interaction. But I have a bit of a bugbear, I guess, with this idea of self-care, which is so prevalent now, which is, um, in my perspective, really embedded in this neoliberal context of um, a withdrawal of government social services um, and the focus on individual people just taking responsibility for their own health, which is you know, a valid, valid part of health care. And yet by itself is, um, in my opinion, is just not enough. You know, I, I think chains of care, communities of care, as well as professional care um, gets minimised in favour of self-care just in this contemporary moment. So a lot of the apps um, that enable people to be really reflexive about their own self-care are valuable, but when combined with that wider context of community and professional services too. Yeah, I can totally agree with your point. And, and we've seen for some of our speakers that, that spoke a bit to these kind of apps that were designed as, you know, primarily function to enable safe care, but then the users took them and, and they put a lot of emphasis on the community aspect of the app and used it as a way to kind of reach those communities of care that you talk about, because for them, there is this need of both. Drive to connect is so great. I think that is there. 
but there's also, of course, a lot of um, a lot of stigma and that value again that it, people should really sort themselves out, um, be responsible for themselves. This t- term from the sociologist Nicholas Rose about responsibilization. So um, I think there's perhaps two competing forces a little bit there for people to be um, silos of care, but also that the drive to connect with others in similar situations. So yeah. both come out through technology. Mm. Mm. I wonder how how would do you see the role of anthropology in maybe making this um, these discourses visible um, and um, helping the community um, reduce their power um, and it could be with a target that is government or it could be with a different type of audience but um, yeah I would I, I would love if you could speak a bit to that sure. I think that is one of the really powerful things about anthropology is that it is so attentive to the flow of power, Mm. but particularly um, in that broader definition of power that not just as a top-down phenomenon, but as something that is so, is every day, it's these micro exchanges of of, um, meaning and interaction. So um, being able to um, really deconstruct um, everything from kind of the behavioural patterns around using things like this to the semiotics of the way that they are designed and presented um, can be really useful to highlight you know, those micro transactions which ultimately build into this bigger picture of the, these ideological forces. Uh, what would you say anthropology as, as needing to be a bit more interventionist in this space? I think that's um, a difficult a difficult question and it's been you know at the heart of the discipline's um, internal conflict for a long time now you know anthropologists have called us to arms to be more militant and more interventionist as you say and then others who say well it's ours to analyze and someone else's to apply which sounds like passing the buck a little bit but um, I think it probably comes down to some extent to um, where each researcher is placed and their own um, reflexivity about um where and how they can speak into this issue um, because just like anyone else we as anthropologists are positioned um, with varying degrees of personal experience with things like mental health of, of industry experience and connection and then of course our, our um, academic understanding of it as well so yeah everyone probably has to hold to their own consciousness a bit with that but um, there's a lot of talk when you come to topics like mental health about crisis you know mental health crisis and to some extent that's just another thing that we need to um, hold critically this idea of crisis that creates moral panic which is not to say that um, the statistics aren't serious and problematic and needing addressing but addressing it as um, this brief crisis I don't think that puts anyone in a um, in a thoughtful long-term mindset in terms of solutions, that kind of panic mode. I have a, I have a bit of a, of a personal challenge with, with, with this kind of um, dilemma, you know, like um, I come originally from Eastern Europe, from Romania and, and Romania, just like Eastern Europe right now is going through a bit of a, of a democratic crisis. Mm-hmm. So after the, the fall of communism, it's, it's been quite a hard journey to kind of, um, look at democracy and and figure out as a country what does democracy mean you know um for our people and what has happened in eastern europe and particularly in romania is that uh, the people that have come post communism they have basically um robbed the country um of a lot of its resources and not really done things that 
the people have seen as good for them. And there's a lot of social uprising, a lot of people kind of saying um, right now, oh, um, the true democracy is actually a return to monarchy. You know, we should bring the forces of, of Europe, of Germany, of Great Britain back into our country to govern us because we are incapable of governing ourselves. Um, communism is terrible. So what happened is that, you know, as an anthropologist, you know, sometimes being an anthropologist, I find a bit of a curse because... <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, because, you know, like um, on my Facebook feed, when there were all these uprisings in Eastern Europe, all of my left friends, um, they kind of labeled me as a communist when I tried to argue um, the monarchy. Um, you know, what does it mean when you have a monarchic system? What does it mean when you have a social democratic system that what does it mean when you have a communist system? So I try to kind of provoke some type of meta conversation about, around governments, governance in my network. And what I ended up doing is um, inflaming the people even more. And they started labeling, labeling me as a communist and, you know, saying, oh, you're not, you know, it's very good from your anthropological high chair to sit there and, 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 and kind of uh, not essentialize. But it's so important to essentialize because that's what moves us to action. All right. <laughs> so... Yeah. So I, I wonder, um, I don't know, sorry, it was kind of like a long reflection, but when you were talking about um, the position of an anthropologist when it comes to these topics that are, that are cultural and essential, and what do you do with, with this objective deconstruction ability that you have? But then at the same time, how does it isolate you from your environment, right? Mm -hmm. and, and how do you manage to kind of find your position where you still contribute to the um, to the society in a way that you find meaningful I don't I'm not sure if it makes sense but it does and I probably have another example from my own research that I could connect that to which is some of the work that I've done with um, Professor Ruth Fitzgerald that I mentioned um, where we were looking at debates in New Zealand around the Down syndrome prenatal screening um, which was, it was quite controversial and did feature strongly in media for a while, primarily because there was this um, activist group formed called Saving Downs, um, which was um, mainly made up of parents of children with Down syndrome who um, were objecting to the way the screening was being implemented. In some cases, the screening full stop um, and its relationship to possible terminations as well of um, fetuses who did have this um, high likelihood of Down syndrome um, diagnosed prenatally. Um, so anyway, we were trying to understand um, the perspective of this group um, within which there were some people, not all, but some with um, particular religious positions on this um, and so some associated with the right to life kind of group, which of course are very controversial and political as well. And so trying to get into their understandings of what life is like to have a child with Down syndrome and what their perspective is on this reproductive technology. Um, so myself and Ruth went to, um, went to a conference um, to present some of these findings about this group, Saving Downs, and um, we had quite a hostile reception to our, um, our presentation at this particular event um, and were really taken by our audience of other academics to be ourselves right to lifers and ourselves associated with this group and ourselves taking this position that, that the testing was akin to eugenics, which is a claim that Saving Downs have made actually to the International Criminal Court. Um, so 
even within the academic community, it's hard to separate out um, what a researcher presents as, you know, we're translators of culture is sometimes what anthropologists are called. So translating what this group thought and felt about this issue to an audience was then taken as us agreeing with them or siding with them. So um, there's that difficulty. But um, in other work, Ruth has also worked with um, groups on the complete other side of the spectrum who, you know, are advocating for um, abortion rights, for example, and is just as often um, mislabeled as taking that group. So I guess there's the question of how we conduct the research, but then there's the other question that you're asking of should we then be um, picking a side and um, on a personal level or an academic level um, mm. be willing to stand where we feel the line should be, which mm. is, yeah, it's a really difficult question with topics like that but of course when you do put a stake in the ground yourself you close off um, the potential to work with probably one side or the other so the ability to listen empathetically to both sides in that case really did rely on us um, not putting a stake in the ground at least for the duration of our own research and whatever our personal feelings on that matter would be so I think there's there's empathy. There's always room for empathy, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean agreeing. Yeah. This this topic of putting the stake in the ground in in my um, comment was related a lot to the applied field somehow. Because when you know when you're an anthropologist in in the applied field, the the they require of you not trans- necessarily just translation, but they require of you a position and action. And, and, and most of the time, they also require, maybe not them, but through the work that you do, to generate some critical reflection, ethical reflection, on whether the work that you're doing is benefiting or not a specific group or, or even society. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's very tricky to kind of navigate that field, especially when you're outside of the warm embrace of academia where ethics seems maybe a bit more approachable. So I was wondering if you, if you have any you know, projects that you've worked with where you had to grapple with ethical considerations or think through those topics. Yeah, I think that it comes into, um, into pretty much everything we do to some extent. Certainly the most explicit example was the one that I just shared where that was a very hot and political topic um, and I had to work out at which point my own um, my own personal beliefs would fit into um, what we shared and presented and published on. But the, yeah, there are other topics too, such as the, the mental health topics that I've worked on mostly in my own PhD research. Um, so thinking about programs that emphasize um emphasize self-care as I've mentioned um uh, because I worked closely with the youth work organization in Christchurch um that became something which the feedback was very important to me on a personal level and is something I'm still um I'm still um in conversation with with that organization so to talk to them about some of the things they were doing and and offer them that critical approach that um, I love this tool you're using, but I, from my analytic perspective, it does also reflect this bias towards um, this neoliberal responsibilization and trying to translate that back to a community that's more practically engaged on the everyday level, um, but also who um, is, you know, this is this something they've built their organization around is a very sensitive topic, but um, things like that I have felt felt, I guess, ethically compelled to share 
and and things that weren't necessarily like deeply wrong in themselves, but just had this particular ideological basis that I thought would be really important to be aware of longer term. Yeah, but you're always um, treating just the normal social grounds and normal social interactions. You say this to people and if they are uncomfortable with it or don't like it, then they might not necessarily want to hear from you so much in the future. What do you think is important to start establishing this relationship um, with this type of organization as an anthropologist to kind of maybe soften the ground for having those conversations? I guess it's just that long-term um, long-term commitment and reciprocity. Um, and that is increasingly difficult in the kind of academic kind of era we're living in where anthropologists don't really get to go and live for years with their groups anymore. And we're also working with um, not isolated cultural groups, but, you know, groups within broader complex societies. Uh, so having that kind of long-term reciprocated relationship can be difficult just in terms of the time <laughs> and the funds but I think that's really important just engaging with people um, as people letting them get to know you and vice versa being a little bit open and vulnerable in and of yourselves yeah I really do love that type of research where it's like closer to home for some reason I don't know why I guess it's because it's like something that we're used to seeing every day and that when you kind of see it in a different light it's kind yeah. of like that moment where you're like oh I didn't realize that you know I just love yeah. it yeah I had quite a striking contrast with that in my PhD research because I did um, a comparative project that was half in Christchurch with this group of youth workers that I had worked with myself for years already and the other half in Uganda with a group of youth workers I'd never met before so being an insider being an outsider the different the relative values of those different things and um, the the difficulties of relationships that are already established and ongoing versus ones that are a bit more bounded by the research period itself but still spill over <laughs> years later. It's a bit of a balance, isn't it? But um, So I guess for the next question would be towards our student audiences and like what advice maybe you'd like to give them either like going into the academic route or the applied route if they want to pursue anthropology. I think anthropology is one of those disciplines that enriches everything it touches. It's, it's a lens and a way of seeing rather than a specific subject area. And so um, what I love to see is how anthropology does combine with other interests and in other research areas, academic or applied or creative or anything. So um, I guess that would be one of my pieces of advice is to continue to connect it and apply it and experiment with it and play with it and use it, suck out all the potential of this fascinating discipline we have in conjunction with whatever your other interests are um, and that also will hopefully work to taking it out there to the public um, and as you say taking it away from this this little bit of a closed ivory tower that we sometimes get and out there where it can be such a useful tool. I wonder if you could speak a bit to the how do you say what would be some of the challenges of you know figuring out um where to take it you know I think I think one of the challenges of from from my personal experience this lens view that you talk to I have as well but only in retrospect 
I remember being being in the in university and you know like wondering what should I I I, I don't see the, the it being a lens there then I see it right now quite clearly looking back and and by doing a lot of work um, I think there's there's something to the practicing anthropology that you realize more and more its value no matter where it's being applied once you don't have that practice you know I, how do you start doing it and still believing that you will figure it out you know it's difficult it's the whole job market at the moment isn't it is it's not um it's not set it's very precarious and very fluid and people don't pick one life trajectory and stay on it but we have opportunity to move through a lot of different areas and um to some extent i think not stressing too far ahead but just taking each opportunity as it comes and following opportunities and passions and interests um, one step at a time is a good route but also being willing to market yourself on those things as a skill like even if you're looking for work in another area as we say being able to identify that you don't just have an anthropology degree yeah. so you're not just marketing yourself on well I can do anthropology <laughs> you're marketing yourself on I have this lens on the world which is creative and critical and um, these skills hopefully these um, practical skills of things like um, ethnographic interviewing maybe or um, just attentiveness to the social world that are applicable anywhere so whether or not you're working towards yeah, a career directly in that being able to um, have the words for an interview or a CV to say uh, what the skills of anthropology are that you have is a really good good first step mm. but as you say um, you might not really realize that till you've got some distance from the degree itself <laughs> So would you would you advise people to start um, getting out there and doing a bit of projects, even if it's volunteer work with organizations or just dipping their toes um, as early as possible to kind of gather that, that practical experience? Definitely. I think one thing that sets apart anthropology um, from other similar disciplines in the humanity is ethnography, mm-hmm. you know, um, really going out there and living with people and engaging with them um, where they are and how they are. And there's there's a fuzzy category, a fuzzy category of what ethnography is. So, yeah, dipping your toes in with research, with volunteering is a great idea. And just as you go about that and about all of life, um, starting to apply that lens, making the connection. But um, as you mentioned earlier, it can be that bit of a curse because you can't always turn it off. So there's the little warning label, isn't it, <laughs> on our discipline, is that once you start seeing the world in this way, <laughs> you can't necessarily stop seeing it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's definitely what, what happens. And um, I also wanted to you to speak maybe a bit to... Um, I don't know how to put this one. I, I have a lot of um, friends in academia, especially in Europe, in the US, talking now about the precarity mm-hmm. of holding on to an academic job as much as they want to mm-hmm. and, and kind of being forced to look for something because they don't have any other option of doing something that they, they really love and enjoy in a space that they love and enjoy. I, I was wondering, what, how is that situation in New Zealand and in the Pacific I have certainly noticed coming out of my um, my own studies that that's what we're moving into as young academics in New Zealand and that yeah everything I hear is that this is really a global reality for academia, that the work is um, short-term, contract-based and precarious. Um, that's the situation that I'm in with my employment at the moment. 
and it forces me to ask those very questions that you're asking um, and um, to think about those same bits of advice that I'm giving you to turn back to myself um, about how to market that more broadly. Uh, and I think that we shouldn't be afraid of working in other areas mm. um, and applying and challenging ourselves to set those things to work in the real, real world. I think that that can be um, hugely enriching for an academic to be out out there and doing other things, whether or not they come back to yeah. um, strict <laughs> pure academia or just continuing on in that route. And as I've already said, it can also be um, enriching for the other groups or organisations or industry sectors that they go to. So a bit of that cross-pollinating, um, you know, it's a brave new world. I think we have to lean into that and embrace that um, if only to pay the bills <laughs> short term and then as we come to terms with it moving on hopefully start to see the deeper deeper value in that but closing ourselves off yeah never going to be a good thing if there's anything we learn from um, anthropology itself studying culture culture is always fluid and changing into inter interacting and if anthropology as a discipline is also a culture, then we can probably um, be okay with changing and adapting and interacting as well. Yeah. Um, I have just one, one, one last question from my side, which, which has to do with the connection between precarity and mental health. Just because right. you've, been taking, you've been talking about the topic of mental health um, at, throughout this um, discussion. And I've seen... Um, a lot of discussions within my own anthropological network a bit, um, about about this. You know, like if you are exposed to a precarious condition um, at the same time as being, you're pushing yourself to deliver quality or finding your own kind of path, how do you deal with that with your own mental health? Um, and, you know, how, how, what is that connection between living for a um, predetermined short or long term in a precarious condition and how can you identify and, and act um, on what that does to your own mental health? That's a very astute question and one that um, I think we're very much living through. Uh, Otago has had its own round of restructurings throughout the humanities um, recently as well. And I, I have an academic interest in emotional labour. So as all of this has unfolded around me, once again, the lens stays put, um, <laughs> even when it's myself in the middle of it. And um, you see this type of thing unfolding. So uh, an interesting example was a symposium about teaching I was at recently where the question was put to the group um, up front. You know, what can we do to foster staff well-being in such times that we're in? And um, I, a lot of people raised their hands. And remember, this is a quite a performative scenario. Everyone else is listening to you too. But a lot of people raised their hands to share things like um, being grateful, um, just finding the joy, pushing through, being having a positive attitude. And as someone who studied emotional labor, I found this really worrying <laughs> that um, there's this, yeah, this push to have um, less and less space for acknowledging the difficulty. Um, so personally, what I was jotting down on my sheet at the same time had been the opposite, really, um, about having backstage spaces, spaces where people can um, vent their frustration and just be um, honest and sharing um, how this is really affecting them. Um, and I think ultimately that does enable more of the other, more of the finding joy where it is and being able to present positively with the good about your situation. But it doesn't really work without that um backstage space mm. as well um, but there's it's difficult to define what a backstage space really is because when you're away from your students you're still with 
um, your colleagues and um, the university has a kind of complex structure like that um, and especially if your job is, is precarious that's difficult given that academics you know our mind is our tool um, or anything that impacts on your ability to concentrate and think and focus uh, is going to impact the quality of your work so I think the expectations um, on people in precarious positions can be extremely problematic. And I guess taking my own advice from before, um, self-care is the smallest part of the picture and we shouldn't be turning it back on individuals then to just be resilient, mm. be flexible, which is a lot of the message that comes through. But we should actually be interrogating too, what is the structure of the university? What is this driven by that these kind of structural pressures are being put on um, on people in these jobs? So I would just like to say to our listeners that we will put up any links you want to share with us, your work or, you know, just anything you'd like them to see. And that it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a very fascinating conversation. And um, yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I also really enjoyed the conversation on such a, such a wide ranging and incredibly relevant topic. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.